Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Good morning, saints. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 34 in a message I'm entitling, The Cure for Worry. The Cure for Worry. So right from the start, I'm going to give you a cheat sheet. If you've ever wanted to know the answer and you go, okay, what's the answer? Trust the Lord. Okay, I'm done. No, I'll, 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 we'll do a few more things. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this church, for its pastor and leadership, for the bright light that they are in the community of Aurora and throughout the Front Range and all of Colorado and the nation. And Lord, my heart and my prayer this morning is for that man or woman whose heart is torn in two. For the person who's preoccupied, perhaps even terrified with what's going on in this world. For the person who's crying himself or herself to sleep at night. For the person who's sick and tired of their drug addiction. For the person who lives in constant fear that perhaps their life is over. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, they will come to believe you, love you, and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, the Lord says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory were not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things." But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Lord has talked about giving in verses 1 through 4, praying in verses 5 through 15, fasting in verses 6 through 18, treasures in verses 19 through 24, and now the theme of this particular section is trusting. It's taking place in the context of what he has just said about treasure in heaven and the reality and the danger of trusting money. No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other in verse 24. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus knew that the rich would be tempted to trust their riches. The poor would be equally tempted to doubt God's provision. But whether or not you're rich, or whether or not you're poor, or if you're somewhere in between, God knows that the issues that you face are real. The rich are sometimes self-satisfied in their false security. The poor are tempted to fear and in their false security distance themselves from the Lord. Jesus has warned about the religious externals, materialism, He knew that wealth could enslave the heart and the soul and the mind. But there's another thing that can terrify. It is the problem of worry. Money has the ability to create and solve problems. Jesus warned that if money gives people a false sense of security and sufficiency, poverty can cause people to doubt God's goodness or God's love. Since he repeats three times, do not worry, do not worry, we begin to understand something, that worry is a sin and that all sin is dangerous. Worry is a thief that steals, robs, kills. We often want to substitute the word for something that sounds a little less harmful, like concern, burden, cross to bear. My granny would say, worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but you won't go anywhere. And that's exactly right. Just for fun, I looked up the word worry in my synonym finder. It said, Fret, agonize, lose sleep, stew, writhe, stay awake at night, sweat blood, feel uneasy, be afraid, lose heart, despair, brood over, borrow trouble, bother, shake, fluster. And I thought when I read that, how appropriate. Worry winds up being a description of what happens to us when we don't trust God, what is it that you're worrying about? Your country? Its future? Your family? Your singleness? Your marriage? 
the house payment, your retirement, your future, what other people think in this passage, by the way. The word translated worry means to be drawn in different directions. It can also be translated pulled apart. All of these things are descriptions of the effects of worry. And if you've ever agonized over making a payment, if you've ever agonized about a job, if you've ever agonized over the paralyzing fear that grips you with a cancer diagnosis, or if your child runs away or threatens never to leave you, then you understand what I'm talking about. And so in verse 25, look what it says. Worry is faithless. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus commands us not to worry. He says in this passage, in verse 25, it's faithless. In verses 26 and 30, it's godless. In verses 31 and 33, it's pointless. In verse 34, he says it's useless. It is in the command form in the original language. It is emphatic. Stop it and never do it again. And if you look at verse 25, look what it says. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. The word for life here is all-inclusive. It's talking about your thought life. It's talking about your internal composition. It's talking about you physically. It's talking about you emotionally. It's talking about you psychologically. It's talking about you spiritually. The person who preoccupies themselves and is torn in different directions begins to understand something. And that is, it is a sign, it is a manifestation of a failure to trust. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves empty and we want to fill that emptiness up with something. And the person who dies with the most toys or treasures still dies. And we live in an, un, in an age of unprecedented materialism, unprecedented consumption and self-indulgence. Greed and ambition in our culture and society are seen as virtues rather than vices. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is listen to the radio or watch television or go online and there are people who will try to fill your mind with get-rich schemes. There are five words that still deceive people all around the world. You can have it all. And Jesus wants to remind you that you have it all in Christ. You have everything that pertains to life and godliness in the knowledge of your Savior. There are voices that will tell you that you can't be content with what the Bible says about your circumstance, about your life, about your forgiveness, about hope, and about the future. 
Jesus commands us not to worry even about the essentials. It's repeated three times. If you're one of those people who underline your Bible, and oh, by the way, if you're young and you don't remember, this is a Bible. I'm sort of an artifact guy. It's okay. My son uses his phone or his tablet for the Bible, but I find it difficult to underline my phone three times. Look at the text. Verse 25, don't worry. Verse 31, don't worry. Verse 34, don't worry. I've already told you he's the reasons. Faithless, godless, pointless, useless. It's faithless in this passage because it denies our trust in the risen Savior. It's godless because it denies the reality of God. It's pointless because of our faith. It's useless because of our future. We eat. We make money. We enjoy life. George Mallory, the adventurer and explorer, wrote that we do not live to eat and make money. He understood that the adventure comes when you now walk into a future. We might say, according to the Bible, whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do it all to the glory of God. It's interesting to me when we fail or when we fall into the trap of worry, here's how it begins. We inflate our problems and then we deflate God's solution to the problem. So at the heart of worry is this expansion, this ever-increasing expansion of why you can't trust him. And all the more reason to trust him. According to the National Weather Bureau, a dense fog can cover a city block seven times, seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet. When I read about that, the Weather Service also said that all that moisture, seven blocks, a hundred feet thick, can fit into one glass of water. Isn't that interesting? Again, how it all seems so large. This can be compared to the things that we worry about. If we could see our problems in their true light, if we could see the future with the mind of Christ, with the eyes of God, then we would begin to place our focus where it belongs. An old man, even older than me, was asked what had robbed him of the most joy in his life. Do you know what his reply was? The things that never happened. The things that never happened. Can you imagine if I asked you that question? What robs joy in your life? What is it that you fear? What is it that you're concerned about? What we worry about is rarely as great as the substance as it is in our mind or imagination. And I'm going to suggest to you that what you worry about will fit neatly in the communion cup that you're going to take next week. You could put it all inside that cup, the sacrifice of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the life and the love of Jesus. One of my favorite stories from antiquity comes about the philosopher of Diogenes. 
He was called the seeker of truth, and he lived during the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was taught by Aristotle. He literally went out and conquered the world. It could very well be that when Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? He might have been thinking about Alexander the Great. It's said that Alexander the Great once asked Diogenes, whom he admired very greatly, he said, ask me any favor you want. Whatever your wish is, ask it from me and I will give it to you. And Diogenes said, could you please move a little bit to the left? You're blocking my son. Now we laugh a little bit. The story from history may not strike you, but if it was Jeff Bezos, who's currently the richest man in the world, or Bill Gates, if Jeff Bezos came to the said, to, to said hey, I'm going to do something in Aurora that I've never done before. I'm going to do something even beyond Oprah Winfrey. I'm going to pick a person. I'm going to ask you whatever it is that you want, and I'm going to give it to you. You can ask for a billion dollars. You can ask for two billion dollars, and I'll write you the check. And chills would go up in your spine as you consider what all that could do for you. What's important about the illustration is if you stood up and you said, there isn't anything that you could give me that I don't already possess. Jeff Bezos, can you forgive my sin? Can you give me eternal life? Can you promise me hope? Can you swear that I will live forever in heaven somewhere? Can you imagine being so content that you could say such a thing? And guess what? The more of heaven that you have in your thinking, the more of heaven that you have in your heart, the more of heaven that you have on your lips, guess what? This world starts to get pushed away from your thinking, from your feeling, and from your living. It was Herbert Lockyer who said, worry produces doubt in a threefold direction. Number one, it doubts God's love. Worry implies that he cares little for his blood-bought, blood-washed children. Number two, God's wisdom is doubted. Worry indicates that he is not able to plan for his own, and he does not know what's best for his own. And number three, God's power is doubted. Worry says his grace isn't sufficient to meet our needs. Think about that. His love is doubted. His wisdom is doubted. His power is doubted. And so we discover that not only does worry rob us, we discover that worry is godless. Look what it says in verses 26 through 30. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, or are they gathered into barns? Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying could add one cubit to his stature? So why are you worrying about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
will he not much more clothe you? And you should underline this. Oh, you of little faith. Understand what he's saying. Your worry goes up in direct proportion to your faith going down. And when your faith goes down and down and down and it hits the bottom, its foundation is unbelief. Jesus gives three illustrations. One about eating, one about life, one about clothing. He refers to the God of heaven as your heavenly father. Some of you may have grown up in a world where you didn't have a father. Or your father couldn't be counted on to make a provision for your life. But Jesus reminds these future citizens of the kingdom that God is their father. And this becomes important because worry causes us to dismiss God from our lives. The moment that you dismiss God from your thinking, from your heart, from your plans, from your future. And so Jesus is going to remind them, God is your father. It could very well be that Jesus saw a flock of birds pass by. Birds don't have advanced degrees in agriculture or economy. There's nothing wrong if you do have an advanced degree in agriculture or economy. But birds don't publish cookbooks, have seed sales. Like all living creatures, birds rely on God for support. And Jesus isn't suggesting that birds do nothing to feed themselves. My wife put in a hummingbird feeder in our backyard. Now, I get it. We're helping the birds along. Who knows but that my wife and I aren't some sort of provision for the hummingbird. But if you watch the birds, they work diligently to search for food. But you know what they're not doing? They're not worrying. They're not out there going, where's our next meal going to come from? Birds are never treated for ulcers. They never stay glued to Fox News wondering if it's all going to end in a flame of fire. Certain species gather food for the winter. But guess what? Even then, they're not motivated by greed. I was reading an article about food shortages in, a, in the world. The world produces enough food to adequately feed every man, every woman, and every child on the planet Earth. Yet, even as I'm saying these words tonight, tonight, one in every three children will go to bed hungry. It's interesting to me, when we live in a world that looks for solutions to problems apart from what the Bible says. According to the Bible, the biggest problem that human beings face is that they're sinners in need of a savior. The second illustration that Jesus gives in verse 27 is about not worrying about how long you're going to live. We are obsessed with life expectancy. You have family and you have friends. You have people in your life 
who are wondering whether or not this circumstance that we find ourselves in is going to result in the end of their life. But you're a Christian. Your life is in God's hand. He's the one who orders the boundaries of your life. My grandmother, if she would have stayed alive, would have lived to 103 it was on her 100th birthday that I asked her, my, my Nona, my grandmother, was from Sicily, from the island of Sicily. And I said to her, Nona, how do you live to be 100 years old? And she looked at me like I was a complete idiot. And she said, you got to have more birthday than anybody else. <laughs> You've got to live long enough to blow out those candles one more time. God is in control. He's determined the borders and boundaries. I'm sure that Jesus is saying this almost tongue and cheek when he says, which of you are going to live longer by worrying? Okay, let's do a quick show of hands. Pretend like it's a Pentecostal church just for a moment. How many of you think worry lengthens your life, shortens your life? Lengthens your life? Couple of hands, okay. Shortens your life. Oh, look at the hands go up. It makes life shorter, not longer. Health officials tell us that worry has negative effects on circulation, heart, glands, the nervous system. There was a time when we believed that germs were linked to most problems in health. But we're discovering that sometimes nutrition and stress and what's going on inside of your head has a profound effect on what's happening to your body. And Jesus uses the third illustration of flowers. He says, consider the flowers. And he said this to people who may have had one or two changes of clothes. He's speaking to a group of people that didn't have a walk-in clothes closet, that didn't have 300 pairs of shoes. So what is he saying? It could very well be that he's saying that we simply spend too much time concerned about things that don't really matter. How much energy and effort go into your wardrobe? Lusting after expensive clothes can become wasteful and sinful. It's not wrong to dress nice and it's not wrong to look good. Billy Graham had like two or three suits and he was going to an event where he was scheduled to speak. It was one of the very last th places where he ever spoke publicly. And his wife said, Billy, you should buy a new suit. And so he bought a suit and he felt so bad about it that he goes, my wife made me buy this suit, but guess what? I plan to be buried in this suit. <laughs> and guess what? That's exactly what happened. He was buried in that suit. He was placed in a simple plywood casket that was made by inmates at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. The the the. The coffin had a cross nailed to the top. It was simple. By now, your mind is probably wandering, and you're thinking, 
Gino, this is such not a, it's such a non-issue. Worry's such a little thing. It's such a small thing. It's such a pointless thing. Why don't you concentrate on something else like our government and it's in the problems and the burnings in the streets or talk about lying or talk about stealing or talk about adultery? According to the Bible, the Bible says that the solution to lying is that you have to start telling the truth. The, the solution to stealing is that you have to stop stealing and start working. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. The Bible is also saying stop worrying. Start trusting. Worry isn't a little sin. Worry is an assault on the integrity of God. Worry is an assault on the love of God and the character of God and the goodness of God. The moment that you decide in disobedience to say, I am going to be worried, you are in effect saying, I won't trust you. I don't trust you. Imagine if you said to the Lord, I'm struggling, Lord. And I want to trust you. I've sung about how I believe you and how I love you. And now I want to trust you. Worry means that I am content to be controlled by my circumstance. I'm, I'm, I'm mastered by my fear. I'm dominated by my doubt. Worry is accepting the perspective of the moment instead of Accepting the eternal perspective, worry invites Satan to fill the void. Satan's tools are lying and suffering and pride and accusation. Yes, accusation. Because it is Satan who whispers into your ear, you shouldn't love him, you shouldn't trust him, you can't trust him. And the moment that you say, I do trust him. He loves me. He gave his life for me. I'm going to heaven, not hell. Look closely at verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. Worry is Satan's substitute for living by faith. Remember what worry does. Worry has the sinister ability to kick God out of your thinking. That's why it's godless. Lisa Owens, who was, was facing a, a knee surgery, she was a little bit worried about the surgery. She was nervous, so she asked her boss, the veterinarian in the clinic where she worked for, for some advice. He was comforting, and without hesitation, he said, turn your worries into prayers. Get plenty of rest. Don't lick the incision. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a preacher, everything looks like it might find its solution in what the Bible says about whatever, whatever it is that you're facing. And look, worry is pointless. Therefore, don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? After all these things the Gentiles seek, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. The Lord is saying, when we worry about material things, 
we are in effect acting like the unbeliever or the make-believer. You have family members, you have friends, you have people in your life, and they are terrified. They go to bed at night terrified. They wake up in the morning terrified. They don't live like people who believe God or believe the Bible. And Jesus says, that's not you. You don't have to live like the heathens or the pagans. People who don't know God preoccupy themselves with what they do know. What does your family, friends, your unbelieving family and friends, what do they know about? They know about eating. They know about drinking. They know about drugging. They know about dressing. They know about what gives them pleasure. But that's not who you are. That's not why you're saved. When you have nothing to live for except the present and pleasure, then self-indulgence becomes the number one thing on your list to do. And remember, the Gentiles, they didn't believe in the God of the Bible. They didn't trust him or love him. We live in a world of chronic boredom and an enlarged sense of self-importance. Ours is a culture of narcissism where we exaggerate our importance. We fantasize about the possession of unlimited success or power or beauty. We have feelings of rage or shame or humiliation and we begin to act on those things and we begin to do things that dishonor God in the hopes that it will cover up our true belief about our emptiness. But that's not who you are. God has come into your life. Jesus has changed you. The Christian claims a God who meets their needs. In the ancient world, the ancient people believed that Helios, the sun god, provided light. Demeter and Ceres provided grain. Diana and Aphrodite provided fertility. These man-made gods were part imagination and part demonic empowerment. But that isn't who your God is. You didn't dream up Jesus. Your family and friends may think that you are living a dream, that Jesus is some sort of myth that you've invented, but it's not true. There's a God in heaven who's created all things. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So if it is, if worry is faithless and godless and pointless, we finally see that it's useless at the end of verse 34. Look what it says. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about the things, its own things, sufficient to the day is its own trouble. So again, think about, think it through. What have we learned? Worry is faithless, godless, pointless, and now useless. Worry doesn't make sense. Why, according to Jesus? Because of your future. What is your future? According to Jesus, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. You are here. You sang the song. If I'm not dead, then God's not done. There's a, a real sense in which that's true. You are here. God has unfinished business with you. 
There will come a time when his business is finished. But until then, you don't have to worry. It's pointless. Jesus says, God knows your thoughts before you ask. He knows your needs. And so, it makes sense to trust him. My wife and I go to the store. She reaches for the green bananas. And I go, is that presumption? Are we going to live long enough to eat those bananas? It's okay to buy for today and tomorrow. Aren't you glad that there's no expiration date on toilet paper? (laughs) But you know what? There's no expiration date on grace either. The same grace that sustains you today, that's sufficient today, will last till tomorrow. But you probably know somebody. You're probably thinking about them right at this very moment. You're thinking about the person that if everything was satisfied in their life, if they had enough food and enough drink and a place to eat and something to do, that they would still worry about tomorrow. That's how committed they are. But Jesus gives us permission. He gives us permission to deal with our problems today And to be willing to face the challenges for tomorrow. Like the manna that came down from heaven in the Old Testament. You had to eat it on the same day that it fell. The Bible says you will keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on you. Because you you trust him. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, that is in Jehovah, there is everlasting life. So here's your cheat sheet, the cure for worry. Deal with your problems one day at a time. What's interesting about what you're reading, Jesus doesn't say there's no such thing as problem. He doesn't say there's no such thing as a a concern, a trial, a test, a temptation. It's wrong to suggest that there's no such thing as problems. But here's what Jesus does. He gives us the freedom to deal with our problems one day at a time. There's an exercise that I found that's very helpful. Write down these three questions. Leave plenty of room for the answer. The first thing is, what is my problem? What is my problem? Define your problem in terms of the goal. It's okay. Spell it out. Number two, what does God want me to do about it? It's interesting because it doesn't matter what I want you to do about it. And again, no offense, what your husband wants you to do about it, or what your wife wants you to do about it, or what the government wants you to do about it. What does God want you to do about it? And the third question is, when, where, and how shall I begin? I'm going to give you the answer. Most good teachers aren't just trying to give you the instruction. They're going to give you the answer so that when it shows up, you'll know what the answer is on the test. When, where, and how shall I begin? It always begins with 
the Word of God. What does the Bible say about this problem? Has the, has the Scripture given us a solution to this problem? When, where, and how shall I begin? From the earliest age that I can remember, I t- was taught, define the problem in terms of the goal, gather information, test the solutions, look for answers, and remember, deal with today's problems today. Velma Sewell Daniels wrote a book about the Arctic Circle and Eskimos, and, and she, she wrote, never ask an Eskimo how old he or she is. She wrote, Eskimos believe that when they go to sleep at night, they die, and that they are, in fact, dead to the world. Every morning, they resurrect and are given a new life. So when you ask an Eskimo how old they are, they always say, almost. (laughs) Almost what? Almost a day. My granny would say, when I would ask her, how old are you, granny? And she would say, as old as my gums and a little bit younger than my teeth. She made me work for it. One year she said, I'm twice six, twice seven, twice 20, and 11. This was a long time ago. So what's the cure? Contentment in Christ? Trusting God's character, God's word, God's power, God's love, God's wisdom, God's sovereignty. And so guess what? You're given permission to be content, to be content in Jesus. So this is my prayer for you. May the Lord Jesus Christ give you enough happiness to keep you sweet, enough trials to keep you strong, enough sorrow to keep you human, enough hope to make you happy, enough failure to keep you humble, enough success to make you eager, enough friends to give you comfort, enough wealth to meet your needs, enough enthusiasm to make you look forward to tomorrow, and enough determination to make each day better than it was before. The believer has nothing to worry about. But that's not true of your unbelieving family, and it's not true of your unbelieving friends. It's not true of the make-believer. It's not true of the person whose heart is torn to pieces, of the person who cries himself or herself to bed each and every night, the one who who lives in constant terror and fear of whether or not they're going to go to heaven or hell. And so it's important. It's important that you make a right decision. Let me conclude by asking you three questions. Number one, do you believe that you're a sinner? If the answer is yes, then the next question is, do you believe that God sent Jesus into the world to live the perfect life that you could never live, to die on Calvary's cross, that he rose from the dead to prove that he's the savior of the world? Do you believe that? And if the answer is is yes, then my final question is this. Do you want to experience forgiveness for your sins? This is a no-brainer. 
If the answer is, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe that Jesus loves me and died for me and rose from the dead. And yes, I want to experience forgiveness. Then why wouldn't you trust him? Why wouldn't you believe him? Why wouldn't you receive him right now? And I want to give you the opportunity to do that. You know, it was Corrie ten Boom, the famous Dutch patriot who hid Nazis in World War II. She used to say, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. God wants to give you strength for the day. Forgiveness for today. Grace, mercy for today. You can know that you have a right relationship with God in Christ. Trust Him. Believe Him. Let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. For the person who's struggling with worry, I pray that they would find grace and mercy, peace and contentment, and that they would now take the vaccine. Trust the Lord. Be content in Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I pray for the person whose life is torn to pieces. The emptiness is overwhelming. The fear unsettling. Lord, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. And if that's you, just pray it with me. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to die a perfect to to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead, that he's alive, he's alive. Jesus is alive and can change me. And I want to receive forgiveness of sin. I want to not just simply believe in God. I want to know him and love him and trust him with my life. I want to experience hope and forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.